0: The first question will take three hours to answer. Please explain the relationship of evolutionary thought to humanism, Marxism, fascism, and racism. (laughs) I must say that uh, all the problems of the human race cannot be attributed to the theory of evolution because before Darwin there were problems that people had in many of these areas of life and lifestyle. But I do feel that these modern atheistic systems, materialistic systems that we mentioned here, do at least find themselves comfortable within the evolution model of Earth history. And if you want to, therefore, to find a symbiosis relationship between these views, you will not be far from the truth. However, a true understanding of biblical creationism, the biblical model, is totally incompatible. Uh, with uh, these systems of racism, fascism, Marxism, and humanism. And, of course, that can be clearly documented if time permitted. Some questions, frankly, I'm not competent to deal with. I hope you'll understand. I, I have to be selective here. And uh, if your question was not answered, please see me and I will try and recommend a book or a person that can, can help you. Uh, archaeologists seem to have proved that there were periods of time where men, as we now know them, did not exist. What was God's purpose in in this? Was there ever a time period such as this? In other words, were there any periods of Earth history that can be uh, described not only as prehistoric, but pre-Adamic? In other words, uh, pre-human? And of course, the creation model does not permit this. Why? Because the whole purpose of the creation of the Earth, according to the Bible is to serve as a, a platform, a stage, an environment for man to honor God in his life and to discover the wonders of God's creation. In other words, Adam was granted dominion over the world as a sinless and God-honoring king of the earth. The earth does not have an independent purpose of existence, according to scripture. And of course, the scientific evidence does not in any way uh, prove that there were such periods of history. Now we're going to talk more about the fossil record tomorrow night as it applies to the pre-Cambrian, Cambrian, and uh, other supposed pre-human eras of Earth history. Does it really make any difference to God which theory you believe as long as you believe in Him and His teachings of love and concern for your fellow man? That's a very significant question because I find this to be a widespread concept today. Namely, Why hassle over what Genesis teaches isn't love all that counts? Now let me just put it this way. Where do you discover that love is what counts? You discover it in the Bible. And you will discover it there only to the extent that you believe what the Bible says about it. Now you see, that's the problem. You cannot just take what part of the Bible you want to believe and reject the rest it is a united coherent consistent system and if you want to believe in the love of god on the basis of what the bible teaches in john 3:16, you also have to believe in the judgment of god the holiness of god the creative purpose of god jesus put it this way if you love me you will what you will keep my commandments we hear much about love but very little about obedience And the one book, instruction book that Christ gave us on how to love one another and thus be a testimony to the world of what a Christian lifestyle is also tells us how he created the world. You know what Jesus said about Genesis? He said, not one jot or tittle shall pass from the Torah that includes Genesis so it's all fulfilled. That's Matthew 5. In John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. You can't break off Genesis 1 to 11 or chapter 1 and dump it. John 5, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, and he wrote Genesis, how can you believe what I say because he wrote of me? Jesus said that. Moses and I are in the truth business together. In other words, the Bible is a unit. Ye do err, said Jesus to his pseudo-scientific contemporaries, not knowing what? The scriptures, nor the power of God. And that's our double problem today. We talk about God's love. But the fact is we're ignorant of what he has actually said in this book concerning the context in which love occurs, namely truth, about himself and who he is. With regard to the statement, organisms either get weaker or become extinct. Are you suggesting that even under ideal conditions, all life will eventually become extinct? What about the fact that man now lives longer, is larger, stronger, runs faster, more intelligent, etc., etc.? Uh, I b- believe that if, under present at the present rate in which things are happening in the world, that in not too many thousands of years all life would become extinct. Yes, uh, through the depletion of uh, the uh, valon and radiation belt, with the deadly cosmic radiation effects on genetic systems, uh, and other polluting environmental effects. Yes. But, of course, the Bible doesn't predict that. The Bible predicts that long before people destroy themselves, God himself will end the world and confront the human race with his revealed standards of truth by which we will be judged. So the real the real threat is not extinction, but judgment, according to this Bible. You say, well, then how come men are longer, live longer, larger, stronger, run faster, and are more intelligent? They're not. They don't <laughs> say well I'm three inches taller than my grandfather but you see that's purely environmental and not genetic there has been no essential genetic improvement there has been through hothouse environmental conditions of nutrition and antibiotics and health things an extension of life but not an improvement of the genetic system and therefore these are environmental factors that have nothing to do with the basic quality of the human genotype. Some of these questions deal with topics that we plan to deal with tomorrow night, so again, uh, with your permission, we will set them aside, and I hope you'll come back to hear your question answered. We will save these till tomorrow, which will have the additional advantage of giving me time to think them through. Uh, Several questions have come about mutations. If mutations are basically negative, how do you explain microorganisms which mutate to forms which are far, uh, which are, um, uh, for example, not sensitive to antibiotics and therefore better able to survive? The situation would be exactly analogous to the uh, peppered moth situation where certain insects have latent within them a spectrum of uh, dominant and recessive genes that can adjust to environmental pressures without changing the actual kind of insect. Not all insects can do that. Some can, and when that pressure is off, they revert to type. And uh, so DDT-resistant qualities and so forth uh, are not innovative, creative, evolutionary at all when, uh, when uh, carefully considered. How can the second law of thermodynamics validate a spontaneous generation from a creator? Well, of course, the creation model uh, predicts that if you extrapolate on a uniformitarian basis backwards uh, along the second law of thermodynamics channel, you will come to higher and higher uh, quality and availability for useful work, like, for instance, the sun. Once the fuel is used up, it's dead, finished. And you work backwards along that scale, uh, that curve, second law of thermodynamics curve, and you will come by logic, by inference, to a uh, system that could only have been created logically. Well, of course, that isn't enough. In addition to a scientific extrapolation, you also have to have divine revelation to give you the details of who did it, in what order, over how much time, and why, and so on. So scientific creationism isn't really enough to prove the kind of God that the Bible presents. I I want to be very clear on that. You cannot prove the details of Genesis 1 by any kind of scientific extrapolations one thing you can prove is that evolution is wrong which is a help but it's not sufficient how do thermonuclear reactions overcome the second law of thermodynamics how does this fit in with evolution Or does it? Uh, As far as I know, there aren't any thermonuclear reactions that uh, overcome the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, It has been claimed by some that in certain types of liquid, that if you uh, uh, strike the flask that has certain type of liquid in it, that crystals will form, thus you have higher order. But this has been carefully analyzed and shown to be just the opposite. Namely, instead of getting a higher order, you get a lower order through that change because the, the design and the potential for those crystals was already in that particular liquid to start with. Obviously, not all liquids. Certain liquids have that potential. And when the potential gives way to actuality, you have a lowering of quality because the lattice work in those crystals shows damage and uh, incompleteness and other problems that illustrate, again, how the second law has no exceptions when properly understood. In your scientific objections to Darwinism, you assume the second law of thermodynamics to be true. However, in your Christian explanation of creation, you deny the truth of the first law of thermodynamics, namely that energy and matter too are conserved in a closed system when you explain that God can create. Well, that's a very good point uh, obviously uh, the first law of thermodynamics which says nothing is being created and nothing is being annihilated uh, points back under the pressure of the second law to a time when something had to be started now of course the first law doesn't prove creation it, along with the second law, puts you under such enormous pressure to have a creator start the thing that you are practically there in the, within a creation model. Now, Genesis puts it this way, that after six days of non-first law of thermodynamics activity, namely creation, that God ceased creating. Listen to Genesis chapter 2 now. God ceased creating, he ended his creation, he finished finished his creation. The point being that according to the Bible, nothing has been added to the universe since the end of creation week, and that's the first law. Now obviously during creation week, the first law uh, was being created, and therefore by definition could not have been functioning. <laughs> of course, the second law was created too. So what happened before there was a second law? There was the eternal existence of a self-contained, self-sufficient, eternal God. Before there was a creation, what was God doing? He has withheld from us the mystery of his pre-creation activity, other than to state of course, that uh, God was self-sufficient within himself. These are mysteries of course that Christians admit there's no solution to because it is not revealed. What about ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny as a support for the evolution theory? Well, the idea is that in the embryo of every uh, form of life, there is supposedly a restatement of the history of the race. That is, that in the human, in mankind, if you analyze the development of the embryo from the fertilized egg to uh, birth, you can see supposedly the human embryo going through a, a, a fish stage with gill slits, and then a monkey stage with a tail until finally the embryo becomes fully human and it's born tailless and with no, em- no uh, gill slits. Uh, this has, this theory has fallen on very evil days. <laughs> among uh, embryologists because of course on closer inspection number one uh, genetically this is absurd uh, the whole structure of man as an adult is blueprinted right into the dna code right from the time of conception and uh, this is true of all living things people sometimes it's analogous to saying well now how come frogs evolve from tadpoles this is ridiculous, no evolutionist would use this kind of argument anymore, if you ever did. The whole sequence, you see, of development from fertilization to adulthood through the uh, various stages is all programmed right from the start. But secondly, of course, no human embryo ever had gill slits. They are simply clefts or folds in the neck and mouth region when the embryo is no bigger than a half an inch, and the farther away you stand, the more you can imagine Well, there's a fish, of course. You can imagine all kinds of things that aren't there. And uh, then, of course, you say, well, now look at this tail, this embryo has a tail. Well, actually, all it is is the spinal column before the legs form completely. And imagination has gone wild in this theory. In fact, one German scientist, so-called scientist by the name of Ernst Heichel, actually doctored up pictures of embryonic development to prove the theory. And that uh, blow has never fully been recovered from in evolutionary uh, circles and I would say today that this embryonic recapitulation theory is defunct among evolutionists who are specialists in embryology. If you claim that the universe was created less than 10,000 years ago how do you explain the carbon dating of some minerals at billions of years? Well of course here again uh, we were going to touch on this tomorrow night under our discussion of uh, the subjectivity in radiometric schemes. But I'll just say, for the benefit of some who might not be here tomorrow night, that every radiometric scheme ever devised, carbon-14, potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, uranium, lead, and all the others, assume by faith the original ratios of the radiometric materials. It is totally impossible to prove what the starting ratios were. Carbon-14 is an excellent case in point. This theory, to be valid, assumes the uh, uh, total equilibrium of the carbon-12, carbon-14 ratios, uh, tens and scores of thousands of years into the past. Of course, nobody claims it's valid for 100,000 years. Someone says here, carbon-14 for billions of years, carbon-14 is of absolutely no value. In dating rocks, billions of years, it has very limited value. It has good. It has fine. It has made a fine contribution within its extreme limitations. If you are careful at the sample that you're dealing with, and very careful about your uh, extrapolations, it can have some value, especially when confirmed by historical records, Egyptian objects and so forth, various dynasties. Uh, We can we can gain some, some insights uh, through applying carbon-14 cautiously and carefully. But it has no value as a scheme to measure the history of the Earth. And as a matter of fact, I do plan to say more about this tomorrow night concerning the other radiometric schemes. Uh, a number of these uh, questions overlap, and as I say, some I can't answer. Some apply to tomorrow night, and therefore I think we're and I thank you so much for your attention. Let's uh, bow in a word of prayer before we begin. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together tonight to look into what your scriptures have to say about the subject of origins. We just pray that you'd cause our minds to be open to these things, if they're new to us and might know how to learn how to submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit. Ask tonight as we look into the area concerning the flood, genesis blood that you would really give uh, openness and uh, clarity of speech and uh, understanding to dr whitcomb thank you that you brought your servant here to us and just be with him now as he comes in jesus name i pray amen dr whitcomb i think will be lecturing from the area there where you stand thank you very much i'm pleased at the very fine attendance tonight as well as last night and for your interest and in perhaps a new approach for some of you to the question of ultimate origins. In a few moments, I'll be putting some overhead uh, transparencies on the screen to illustrate and explain uh, some of the points that we would like to make very clear tonight. And then immediately uh, after that, we will have a question and answer period. And immediately after that, we will have the film, The World That Perished, a film that has won Uh, first prize among documentary films in this nation in the Evangelical Film Association. I think you will see that it was uh, very effectively done from a technical standpoint, and we are trying to prepare, as it were, for that presentation by our lecture right now and hopefully by the question period that will follow. I would like to just make some background introductory statements about the presuppositions that we bring to this study tonight. For those of you who were here last night, you recall that it is absolutely essential to be honest with your own bias and presuppositions with regard to a world and life view. This is nothing to be ashamed of or to be embarrassed about. Uh, Every human being must have a world and life view. Uh, However primitive or limited uh, or unsophisticated it may be, He is totally dishonest if if he gives the impression that he is unbiased, unprejudiced, has no presuppositions, and uh, accepts all facts equally without screening them according to some kind of a system of values. And so tonight I am honestly stating what my presuppositions are. As a former evolutionist, a student at Princeton University in the early 40s, I accepted everything I had been taught from youth up concerning the uniformitarian evolution model of Earth history, which of course is the currently popular approach to origins and to therefore the meaning and significance of life on planet Earth. At the end of my uh, first experience in science courses at uh, Princeton in Earth history, paleontology, geology. I experienced what I called last night a spiritual catastrophe a shattering blow to my whole world and life view (coughs) from which I have not fully recovered and do not expect to that launched me into a totally different world and life view which I have been studying and teaching and lecturing on in the last 35 years namely the creation catastrophism model of earth history And above and beyond that, the religious commitment to the existence of a personal living God who has revealed himself in a special book, the Bible, which focuses on a special person, namely Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, and the final judge of human beings. Now, it's within that frame of reference that we approach tonight. The catastrophism aspect of the creation catastrophism model and i trust that the questions will direct more in that area tonight but i'm not excluding questions on last night's discussion of creation and evolution tonight it's uniformitarianism catastrophism because this question is absolutely essential as you look back in earth history at the question of where did the fossils come from How do the dinosaurs, for example, fit into Earth history in relation to the human race? Uh, Where do we uh, explain the various gigantic uh, evidences apparently of catastrophism on nearly a global scale, volcanism, lava flows, mass extinctions of millions of mammoths in Siberia and Alaska, stupendous mass sedimentation sequences called strata, and the fossils that they contain billions of them beautifully preserved in horizontal superimposed layers uh, in almost every continent of the earth and all of these things that have for centuries been a focal point of controversy among those who are fascinated by earth history not just to satisfy their curiosity but to seek for meaning If we don't know where we came from and how the earth got here we have no real basis for knowing who we are or where we're going or what to do with the lives that we have to live now you'll notice in your outline if you'll please turn to lecture number three the genesis flood and evolution i would like to give you seven keys to global catastrophism and you'll notice on the page after that the bibliography i have some of the more important work in contemporary literature that give you the pros and the cons and the academic struggles to come to grips with the implications of the data as we find them in the Earth's crust and in the solar system. Now, the first of the seven points I would like to touch on tonight is the Genesis record. I do that because I personally am committed To the proposition that the genesis record which of course is the first of 66 books in the volume of holy scripture which we call popularly the bible this portion of the bible has not only internal evidences of its own truth fantastic masses of geographic and genealogical and chronological and historical and scientific data Uh, In fact, even the 10th chapter of Genesis alone has more geographical data in it than the entire Quran. Now, that is something that, at least on the surface, invites investigation. And archeological discoveries in the so-called Bible lands of the Near East have brought, as we all are aware, I'm sure, spectacular confirmation to detail after detail in the Old Testament historical records. In fact, this has been my Uh, one of my teaching responsibilities the history of the old testament in the 27 years that i've taught at the graduate school uh, there at winona lake indiana absolutely astounding spectacular and repeated confirmations to archaeology of the historical details of the old testament what does this do does this prove that the old testament is totally true no does it prove that it is inspired of God, no, because in the nature of the case, there are hundreds of thousands of details in Old Testament history, which could never be physically, tangibly confirmed by archaeological discovery. However, it does at least do this. It calls attention to the fact that the Old Testament is far and away the most accurate, ancient record of history known to man. That much, archaeologists agree. Now, what about the details, though, of the book of Genesis? Particularly the account of the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and of the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. Uh, what archaeological confirmation do we have for that? I would like to make this statement, first of all, before we get to the confirmation, which is point two, namely universal flood legends. I want to make this statement about what Genesis says about the flood. We can't presuppose that everyone here tonight is aware of what the Genesis record really says. The Genesis record clearly sets forth, in my opinion, three basic propositions about the flood. Number one, it was geographically universal. It covered the entire planet, not just Mesopotamia and the tigris euphrates region over and over again in one way or another the genesis account makes this clear that all high mountains under the whole heaven used the biblical expression were covered with water for a year it was my privilege 20 years ago to co-author with one of america's leading hydraulic engineers a 500-page volume entitled the genesis flood the biblical record and its scientific that this is non-historical or non-scientific or incredible or impossible, but one thing is clear. The Genesis record claims universality for the Flood. The second thing that the Genesis account clearly claims for the Flood is that it is supernatural in origin. It did not happen just by chance. It wasn't a chance combination of forces in the crust of the Earth that brought about somehow mountain-covering, year-long floods. It was divinely induced for a specific, clearly stated purpose in the Old Testament, namely one of several, well, one of two universal judgments that human beings will be confronted with under God's administration of the world as part of his program of revealing himself and bringing men to himself. That flood has enormous pedagogic, that is teaching, instructional purpose for the human race. In fact, that's one of the reasons we want to discuss it tonight. A universal flood, why would God have done such a thing to the world? Very, very important point in what we call theodicy, the science of defending and vindicating the character, the moral character of God in the light of what he has done in this world. The third thing Genesis says, more indirectly, to be sure, but definitely, is that that flood has scientific implications. It is universal, it is supernatural in its origin, but it is natural in its effects. You cannot have a literal universal year-long flood accomplishing nothing geologically on this planet. It must have implications hydrodynamically. This, of course, is where uh, Dr. Henry Morris, in my opinion, one of the leading uh, Bible science lecturers and debaters of our generation, has uh, focused his uh, expertise as a hydraulic engineer on this question. If you take the Genesis record seriously, you then must look for some type of effect hydrodynamically of such a w. What would such a flood have done to the crust of this earth in terms of sedimentation, volcanism, diastrophism, fossilization, glaciation, changes of climate, in other words, on a global scale permanently? And where do you see the effects of this, and how can that somehow be fitted together into a model of earth history that is self-consistent and reasonable within the framework of a supernatural miracle-working God? who can present to men a trustworthy record of what he's done. That leads us to point two, we're going to get into the scientific aspects a little later, but I want you to notice argument two now, universal flood legends. You will see tonight on the film a fascinating presentation of this, and very few people seem to realize that almost every part of this planet contains vivid living remembrance of the flood. No matter where anthropologists have explored in the jungles of Africa or the islands of the Pacific or South America or everywhere, every nation remembers the day long ago when quote, the gods were angry with men and spared one family through a global aqueous catastrophe which floated on shoreless waters releasing a a raven and a dove at intervals to determine the assuaging of the water and landing upon a mountain, after which the animals were released and a sacrifice of thanksgiving was offered. And from that family, all human beings have descended. Now that is the basic motif, the pattern in all nations. Why? We are suggesting because as a matter of fact, there was such a flood. Now, one legend is fantastically important. And that is the Gilgamesh Epic of the Babylonians recorded on clay tablets in cuneiform script 4,000 years ago. Now the actual, there are many copies of it that have come across uh, the attention of archeologists, versions of it. But this is generally agreed to date back in its uh, basic form to about 2000 BC. Now this Gilgamesh Epic tells in precise detail the things I just mentioned. And many have struggled with the question, well, did Genesis come from the Gilgamesh epic since Genesis is written five or six hundred years later than that? And the amazing answer is this, no, all we know of the trend of legends in the ancient Near East is that they become more corrupted, more absurd, more irrational as time goes on through inheritance, through oral tradition, just like any system in the world as we discussed last night, the second law of thermodynamics, let loose in the negative environment of this world system will disintegrate in quality and communication. Now, I have brought with me tonight a volume that uh, I just want to mention, and that's all. Alexander Heidel one of the world's greatest cuneiform scholars at the Oriental Institute, University of Chicago, wrote a book called The Gilgamesh Epic and Old Testament Parallels, in which he carefully examines Genesis and the Gilgamesh Epic, and here's his conclusion. That Genesis is the correct record of what really happened, even though it was written later, because its source is pure, namely God. But the Gilgamesh Epic, which was written earlier, is similar to Genesis because it is a oral tradition of the same event described in Genesis. In other words, there is no literary connection between the two documents, but they both point to the same precise event. That is the finest type of judicial confirmation for the reality of an event, namely eyewitnesses that do not agree with each other in detail superficially, but which when closely examined are not contradictory in court of law, considered a very fine testimony to the truth of the event. Now points three and four in your outline, hydrodynamics of massive sedimentation and point four, hydrodynamics of massive fossilization. I consider this to be one of the greatest new spectacular discoveries of the 20th century by scientists who are specialists in hydrodynamics, that is, the science of the effects of moving water under flood conditions. Here's what these men have discovered, among them, Henry Morris, that according to known laws of moving water under flood conditions, there is only one possible effect of a universal flood, and that is mass fossilization in superimposed horizontal layers. Let me turn it the other way around. There's only one possible cause of what we see in the Earth's crust, namely gigantic masses of horizontal superimposed layers of sediment packed with billions of fossils perfectly preserved, namely a universal flood. Now, this is, I think, one of the greatest controversies of our generation in terms of historical science. Perhaps you know that geologists have drastically changed their whole approach to earth history under the pressure of the evidence of gigantic changes in the earth's crust. When I studied historical geology at Princeton in 1942 and 3, it was total uniformitarianism and a static unmoving earth crust. But now that's all been changed. Now we have drifting continents and shifting uh, uh, plates, tectonic plates, and uh, stupendous uh, interruptions to the uniformitarian processes of geology, and great volcanism, and mass extinctions of creatures. And where did these catastrophes come from all of a sudden? Well, of course, Genesis predicted it all along, you see, in the creation catastrophe model, but for what we believe to be philosophic religious reasons or prejudices. Genesis has suffered a fantastic eclipse in the last hundred years since the promotion of neo-Darwinism or Darwinian evolutionism and Lyellian uniformitarianism. And it has only in recent days, last 10, 15, 20 years, been given serious reconsideration. That's what we're asking tonight, a serious reconsideration of the possibility that Genesis is true in what it tells us about that flood and its effects that can be predicted from such a model and discovered in the actual world in which we live. Now if you're interested in this type of thing, and I, I am not going to imply that you're not, hydraulics, hydrodynamics is the key that unlocks the mystery of the history of this planet, not historical geology but hydraulics. Why? Because the surface of this planet gives fantastic, universal evidence of the effects of moving water under flood conditions on a global scale. And it is not the theory of uh, empirical geology that that provides the key, but it's the actual experimentation and observation of what moving water under flood conditions does do under local flood conditions today that provides the key, there is the valid scientific method. If we see it on a local scale now, think of what would have happened on a global scale. If we see these effects today, what caused them? And the highly controversial emotional aspect of this is simply that the more we get back the gigantic global catastrophes that we see evidence of everywhere, the more our religious presuppositions come through. Could these things have just all happened by chance? Or did God bring about such catastrophes to this world? Will the world end by chance, just sort of petering out? Everyone choking and dying under the pollution of a, of, a, uh, of a world that is destroying itself. Or will the world be confronted at the end of history by the judgment of such a God? And I am honest with you tonight when I say your religious presuppositions concerning earth origins and earth destiny is absolutely vital in this question. You say, what is it about the Earth's crust that demands such tremendous supernatural intervention? Well, just such things, point five, as polystrate and reverse fossils, for example. What are polystrate fossils? I'll show you a picture of one in a moment. Uh, what, uh, What are reversed fossils? I'll show you another picture in a moment. These are actual situations in the Earth's crust that cannot be explained by any gradualism or uniform, slow processes of nature that we see happening today. They demand stupendous, almost global catastrophism. You say, well, don't we, can't we prove from uh, radiometric methods of uranium to lead and potassium argon and rubidium, strontium and so forth, and carbon-14 that the earth really has been billions of years old and each of these layers with fossils in it can therefore be dated? We touched on this last night. It has now been recognized that, as a matter of fact, this is a very subjective, highly subjective approach to Earth history and to radioactive elements. Why? Because religiously speaking, this uniformitarian scheme presupposes by faith the starting ratios and initial conditions of the radioactive elements that are under consideration. And exactly the opposite effects have been found by looking at other data. For instance, we know the date of some rock that was formed in Hawaii by volcanic eruption less than 200 years ago, but applying the same precise test to that rock, uranium-lead, produces an age of two billion years. This is the kind of thing that is raising serious questions about the objectivity, the empirical scientific validity of some of the radiometric schemes that have been taken for granted. And of course, point seven, the ultimate question then, how old is this earth? If its basic features have been catastrophically suddenly formed and uh, five or four billion year old radiometric dating schemes are questionable or debatable, how old is the earth? And we plan to bring some of these evidences to your attention in conclusion this evening. Now, just to show a few of these uh, pictures for you. This is a little recap on last night's discussion, in which we pointed out that the the ultimate question, believe it or not, is your starting point. What are your basic presuppositions or biases? You start at the top with preconceived ideas about origin. Here's one of them. There is a God who could have created the world. There is no God, everything happened by chance. That is not the end product of scientific analysis, but a preconceived religious bias. So you notice on both sides here, bias, bias. That sound like a bad word, let's face it. Every human being who's honest about himself admits that he is locked in at least temporarily to his particular bias pattern in screening out the data. Now, you can start with an evolutionary bias, which, of course, is mechanistic and naturalistic. That is, an outside personal God does not ever intervene into the system, creating or destroying anything or saying anything to men because there is no God, atheistic, or... The God who created the world left it billions of years ago and has had no connection with it since. That's deism. He just wound up the universe, sent it out, and has had no contact with it since. That's deism. Which amounts to the same thing. In other words, for all practical purposes, there is no God. He's a philosophic uh, convenience to say, well, okay, we have to have a God to start the universe, but uh, we've never heard from him since or theistic evolutionism. Namely, yes, God created the world, and he has had a lot to do with it since, by occasionally creating like trilobites uh, two billion years ago, and uh, uh, vertebrates, and then finally, uh, a million or so years ago, man. And uh, within those parameters, we have vast ages of time and evolutionism under God's direction. May I say just in passing that not one of those positions can be supported by the Bible? They are either extra biblical or anti biblical presuppositions. They have nothing to do with the Bible. I mean, you can plug in any God you want here. The God of the Bible does not speak this way in his self revelation. How does God speak in the Bible? I mean, you may not. You may not uh, want to listen to what the Bible says about origins. Uh, That's your personal privilege. But we're saying tonight, if you are interested in what the Bible says about the origin of the world and the present relationship between God and the world, you end up with this approach. Namely, the world has a supernatural origin, which implies a creative design by God. The world did not happen by chance, it was planned. And the fantastically complex creatures you see in it and laws of nature and systems, non-living and living, are not products of chance and time, but are products of a design and a creator's infinitely powerful word. You say, well, how do the scientific data then fit into this? Believe it or not, either way you want you will screen the data you want to fit into your model. You say, well, if evolutionism is as wrong as you said it was last night, how come evolution textbooks have thousands and thousands of facts? Well, all you have to do is go out at the table tonight and you'll see more textbooks that have thousands and thousands of facts also, that have a totally different approach as to how you interpret them. Remember, not one scientific datum or fact or phenomenon is self-interpreting. Not one fossil ever unearthed has a label on it saying, I was buried one billion years ago, or I was gradually deposited by uniformitarian processes." You must decide first what your presuppositions are and you will be amazed at how many facts you can screen one way or the other to fit in. But we do have to be honest and examine what the bases of our theory are. Can your theory of world history explain what has been observed? Can it predict what has not yet been observed? A good model can predict a few things, see, and thus test it. Three, can it be tested by further examination and modified as required by the acquisition of new data? Fourth, can it be subjected to a test of falsification? Is there any test, is there any discovery? that can be imagined that would disprove evolution? Is there any discovery that could be made that would disprove creation? Think it over. If you haven't thought that over, you have no right to be dogmatic about your worldview. Now, as you look at Earth history, you're familiar, of course, with the evolutionary geologic timetable. In which Earth history has been basically divided into three parts Paleozoic, which is uh, Greek for ancient time, Paleozoic, and Mesozoic, middle time, and of course Cenozoic, recent time. So you have three segments of Earth history during which life supposedly evolved from one stage of simplicity to another, to another, and of course, finally, man. Now, you say, well, where do we get all the data? Uh, for that model. Well, I am fascinated by the methods that geologists use to determine the ages of rocks, because that is absolutely crucial to the question of Earth history. How do you know that certain types of trilobites are the clue to unlock the mystery of the actual absolute age of the sedimentary rock in which they're found? How can you be sure? Remember they don't have labels on them. There is nothing about the fossil that can tell you how old it is. Not, you can't tell by how crumbly it is at the touch or how smelly it is or how rotten or soft or white or whiskery or whatever. You can't apply carbon-14, it is irrelevant to this type of uh, material. Uh, how can you tell how old it is? You can't apply the uranium lead test because it doesn't work with sedimentary deposits. And here's the answer. Paleontologists the world over will admit this, honestly, in advanced textbooks and articles, that the only way you can tell how old the rock is, is by the kind of fossil that's in it. And the only way you can really tell how old the fossil is, is by the kind of rock that it was found in. This is what we call the circular reasoning problem. You say, you mean there's absolutely no objective, scientific, empirical basis upon which you can name these dates? No, there is none. You can search the textbooks. In fact, in our volume, The Genesis Flood, we have given many, many quotations from leading works on paleontology that frankly and openly admit the fact that index fossils are the product of circular reasoning. Now, how can we get this general agreement? Why do all the textbooks agree on the Paleozoic, Mesozoic, Cenozoic time spans? And the answer is this. The evolution uniformitarian model of Earth history demands no God, no design, no creation. Therefore, higher forms must develop naturally from lower forms, complex from simple ones, through endless ages of time. And Darwin set up with his friends in England, at the early part of the 19th century, a tentative guideline called the Geologic Timetable, which was named in detail after certain eras, excuse me, certain areas of uh, Europe and later of America, such as the Mississippian, and of course you recognize Devonian, uh, in which we have, supposedly, the time necessary for one thing to evolve into another? You say, well, what, what does the creation model do with this? Uh, what, what alternative do you have as you look at the geologic record? And the answer is this. Number one, nothing ever can evolve from anything else in vertical improvement of structural functional quality. Why? We pointed out last night. A number of reasons why not, I'm not going through all of those again. It is empirically, scientifically impossible. There are no missing links. There is no transition, either paleontologically in history or observationally in the present. Well then, where did these things come from? They were designed and created as distinct genotypes with built-in DNA programming to reproduce after their basic kind. Well then, how come they're in this order? Because there's another part of the creation model called the catastrophe model, namely that the entire world was subjected to a stupendous aqueous catastrophe with mass burial over an entire year of time. Now, you say, well, the year isn't very long. Well, hydrodynamically, when you have mountain covering masses of sediment-saturated waters sweeping over hundreds of thousands of square miles, you can have a mass burial to the depth of hundreds or thousands of feet in one day. So a year of such stupendous hydrodynamic forces is more than adequate, scientifically speaking now, to bury every kind of creature that lived in the world at that time of the deluge according to the vertical life zones in which creatures live. In other words, in the early stages of the flood, you'd expect the creatures to be buried first living lowest in life zones, namely on ocean bottoms, crustaceans. Creatures to be buried in later phases of the flood to be creatures living in higher ecological zones. So that finally, when you get up, as you saw in the previous chart, to the realm of the uh, fishes, the invertebrate animals would be buried later. And higher in any statistically average vertical column of burial, and of course mammals last. The presupposition being here that all these creatures were living in the same world at the same time and were buried according to the phases of the movements of the deluge waters. Now you say, well, that that still it just seems suspicious because why are they all in such beautiful arrangements like that? All right. I would like to point out what we mentioned earlier, the reversed fossils. Now you see before you just one of a number of places in the North American continent where, as a matter of fact, the fossils are upside down from the order that evolution demands. This is just one area where you find a mountain of enormous size and length and breadth, in which the entire top layer contains, for example, trilobites, crustaceans, which are index fossils for the Cambrian, the earliest era of Earth history, supposedly. But underneath them, dinosaur fossils. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, this is totally impossible. Why? Because you can't have dinosaurs evolving into crabs. You say, so what does evolutionism do to this? How does the evolution model adjust to this crisis? Watch carefully. By calling it a what? A thrust. Do you see this? Or an overthrust. Now here's the theory. That once upon a time, of course, if evolution model is correct, the trilobites were on the bottom and the dinosaurs were on top of them. That's the way we have been taught for a hundred years to expect the fossils to be. But somehow or other, in this region and in others that could be mentioned, that are even more spectacular, somehow this whole lower region was shifted upward in a gigantic geological fault line uplift. And this one sank down proportionately to this one. Then, now here's the crucial point, because that does happen. There are fault lines and shifts vertically in the Earth's crust here and there. But now watch carefully. Then, this layer slid sidewise over this layer, 40 or 50 miles, came to rest upon it. Its top layer, which should have been, you remember, dinosaurs, completely vanished. Where? Nobody knows, but it had to vanish because it had to be once there. Now from the standpoint of uh, engineering and the movement of gigantic thrust blocks in this particular region of 800,000 billion tons of rock horizontally over 40 miles, the end product would have to be a total distortion of the rock beneath, an almost total destruction of the rock on top, which would lose all of its shape and form. It would be like trying to push a pile of yellow sand from one corner of your sandbox on top of a pile of red sand at the other corner of the sandbox without disturbing the shape of either. Because of friction coefficients for sliding blocks and the enormous crushing force gravitationally, they could not maintain their coherence at all. Now the creation catastrophe model says this, look, there's something highly suspicious here. We believe that there are, of course, limited areas of overthrust, but they are clearly visible in the way they uh, leave their telltale remarks or evidences. But in this case, you have a situation where in the, in the confusion of a global catastrophe and masses of water burying something here, and then another sweep from another direction, depending on the life zones that were swept by sedimentation, and then perhaps gouged up and re-sediment, uh, re-deposited in another sedimentary layer so that statistically, on the average, you would have this gradation, but there are great areas of exception, too. In other words, anything could be buried on top of anything else in the total chaos of a global flood. Now we feel that the data fits better this model, you see, of catastrophism than uh, the evolution model can explain it. Now here's another case. You look carefully at these uh, sedimentary strata and what do you find? You find coal seams which have delicate flowers and leaf patterns perfectly preserved in them smashed flats, spread over hundreds of miles. Of course, in North America, we're vitally concerned about fossil fuels. All right, how did the coal get there? Mind you, it's one thing to be able to predict where you'll find the coal. It's another thing to explain how it got there. Evolution says the coal got there through millions of years of gigantic forests sitting in shallow water, in other words, peat uh, bog, peat bog. And as the trees died, they just fell over and rotted. And then other trees grew up and fell over on top of them. And then other trees, and then other ones, and finally after millions of years, there is an enormous superimposed column of rotten trees that have created such gravitational force that the bottom ones begin to carbonize under pressure. That does not fit the facts. Many coal geologists agree have many articles on this, (laughs) that coal could never have been formed that way, or all the leaves and the flowers would have been rotted out of recognition. In fact, there is no peat fog in the world today that could ever do such a thing or be imagined to do that. Uh, Well, then, where did the coal come from, all right? The creation catastrophe model offers this suggestion. That at the time of the global deluge, a richly forested jungle steaming uh, tropical climate world was uh, subjected to stupendous masses of water that ripped up forests and under stupendous thrust forces, smashed them, carbonized them rapidly, thus preserving from decay and destruction the delicate leaf patterns and so forth, and furthermore, note this providing for polystrate fossils. Now, what are these? These are gigantic carbonized tree trunks, 50, 60, 70 feet high, that transect whole series of layers of sediment, a layer of coal, a layer of shale conglomerate, a layer of marine deposits, another layer of coal, until finally the whole tree is covered, you see, with layers. Now. It is impossible to have a tree standing erect or semi erect for a hundred million years waiting for sediments to build up around it. <laughs> that is exactly the problem of polystrate polar many strata fossils that transect whole series of them. Did you know that there are hundreds and hundreds of such problems with the uniformitarian gradual interpretation of the origin of coal? We have provided a sequel to the Genesis flood called The World That Perished. And it's, uh, this is a title that was adopted for the film you will see in a few minutes, in which we have added a great deal of additional information that uh, was not available at the time that the Genesis flood book was written. And in this book, we have been able to show, page 83, that coal can be formed within minutes. Uh, The College of Mines and Mineral Industries, University of Utah, provides in the Chem Tech Journal, 1972, this statement, the formation of coal from woody or other cellulosic material in a very short time was demonstrated by experiments performed by Dr. George Hill. He stated, These observations suggest that in their formation, high rank coals, that is anthracite and low volatile bituminous were probably subjected to high temperature at some stage in their history. A possible mechanism for formation of these high rank coals could have been a short-term rapid heating event. In other words, coal does not require millions of years to form, it requires special conditions to form, that's all. And if you have the special conditions of stupendous heat, generated by friction and masses of material smashed together. You have the results that perfectly fit the evidences empirically that we find today. Now I want to just briefly mention the matter of the age of the earth, touch on a couple of other problems, and then have your questions in a few moments. You say, well, what then do we do? With all the evidence we read in textbooks about the fact that the Earth is four or four and a half billion years old. Well, here's what the creationists and catastrophists would recommend that you do listen to the other side of the story and reconsider your religious presuppositions as to what data you will consider seriously. How about this datum, for example? Dr. Thomas Barnes professor of physics for 35 years at the University of Texas, has gained international fame for his discovery that the Earth's electromagnetic force field is decaying at a fantastic speed. Notice this decay curve of the Earth's electromagnet, which keeps our compasses functioning, aiming to the north predicted from 130 years of observation. Now, all over the world, careful records have been taken of the Earth's magnetic moment, and it has been found, to the amazement of scientists, that this electromagnetic field is deteriorating so fast that every 1,400 years, it's half as strong as it was. So when you come right back to 10,000 or 8,000 B.C., 10,000 years ago, On this extrapolated curve, and of course, this is typical uniformitarianism, we admit it, (laughs) you end up with a force field so enormous that this planet would have been equivalent to a magnetic star, and no life could have existed here. And furthermore, it is predicted on this model, this curve, that if nothing happens to stop this, (laughs) namely God's. Destruction and judgment of the world before then, by about 11,000 AD, there will be practically none, and the Valen Allen radiation belt would have collapsed, and deadly cosmic radiation would constantly sweep this planet. And that would be the end of life at the other end of the curve. Now, this has been very carefully worked out. I have brought with me a technical monograph by Dr. Barnes. He is the author of. Uh, university textbook on magnetism. But here's his monograph, Origin and Destiny of the Earth's Magnetic Field, if you care to check out the mathematics and the data. I've also brought with me Harold Slusher's work on critique of radiometric dating. There is no way that this kind of evidence can be denied in favor of an evolution model. In other words, are evolutionists really that objective? Are they willing to look at all facts? Another volume that very carefully details these matters is Melvin Cook, professor of Metallurgy at University of Utah and his Prehistory and Earth Models volume, totally committed through his analysis to catastrophism as the key that unlocks the mystery of this planet's history. I've also brought with me... This fascinating volume called Surtsey. If you want to know how long it took to form the Earth as we know it, since the flood, the present continent, since the deluge, this book is must for you. Have you ever, how many have heard of Surtsey Island? It's an island that rose right out of the Atlantic Ocean near Iceland 20 years ago, maybe 18. This book shows you that within 10 years that island had attained geologic maturity to such an extent that with a sandy beach and interior features, you could not believe that that place had only existed for 10 years. I mean, the rapid development of supposedly mature geologic features that presumably would have taken hundreds of thousands of years. This is written by a, uh, an Icelandic geologist of uh, high reputation, and I recommend that for your consideration as an illustration of this type of thing. Uh, of course, we're aware that the earth is not stable. It is very volatile, as a Mexican farmer discovered in his uh, cornfield one day when suddenly a mountain rose up and reached a height of over 1,100 feet a volcanic uh, uplift, tremendous earthquake shocks that show that the Earth's crust is only now still regaining stability after the stupendous shock that it experienced, we believe, at the deluge. You say, what about the ice age? The evolution model does not explain the ice age. We hear new theories every year. What caused the Ice Age and the extinction of dinosaurs and mammoths and so on? Genesis tells us what happened to trigger the flood under God's intervention namely, the collapse of a gigantic global vapor canopy, which had trapped as a greenhouse the earth's heat, even in distributing it, even in the Arctic zone. As you look in the Arctic region, you see tropical plants and animals in fossil formations. Uh, And all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. They died and were buried and frozen. In fact, in Siberia alone, five million mammoths have been found, every in the world for a thousand years, tusks of mammoths sticking out of the frozen tundras of Siberia. And some of the mammoths have been found intact before animals devoured them and have been transported to museums such as Leningrad for careful analysis, and it has been found, and this book, by the way, will be, I've reviewed, will be published, I think, next summer, called Waters Above, it's an analysis of the vapor canopy concept in the catastrophism model, that this animal, grazing peacefully in uh, temperate or semi-tropical regions, along with five million of his companions, was instantly frozen solid by a mass of air at least 180 below zero. How do we know that? Because every part of his stomach contents, the vegetation in his stomach and in his mouth, was perfectly preserved and fresh. And in order to accomplish that through quick freeze through a stomach wall four inches thick matted with hair, you would have to have a mass of super cool air falling from the stratosphere at least 180 below zero frozen solid and then buried by masses of water sweeping in from the oceans, preserving them from destruction as a permanent part of the crust of the earth forever. In other parts of the world, gigantic dinosaurs, tens of thousands of them being unearthed all the time. What happened to these? A drastic change of climate on a global scale is the only viable explanation for the extinction, the mass extinction of creatures. Of this type that depended upon an even temperatured tropical or semi-tropical uh, world because of their cold-blooded characteristics and their enormous size. What we're saying is that no matter what you look at in earth history, catastrophism cries out for consideration. But we also honestly admit tonight that unless you approach the data with at least a willingness to say, in the center of your personal being, there is a God. I believe in him. I believe that he could have done what this book, the Bible, says he did. I think I can guarantee tonight that none of this information will be of any interest to you at all. Why? Let me put it bluntly. And I'm talking autobiographically because I was a committed total uniformitarian evolution. Here was my attitude. <laughs> My mind is made up, do not bother me with the facts. The new creationist movement that is beginning to appear on the scene in many universities, in debates and so forth across this country, simply offers to the American academic public this appeal for the sake of academic and intellectual integrity and honesty and self-respect. Even if you are committed for life to an anti-God, anti-Bible presupposition in your lifestyle and thinking, why not be able to say, I have studied the alternative and am more convinced than ever that my bias is scientifically and empirically valid? Any questions? I think, uh, Mr. Moore, we should take a break first and then come back for questions. All right, a four and a half minute break. Thank you.